we began to look at last week in 2 Corinthians, the New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to begin in chapter 5 and begin in verse 21. Again, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, and then we will skip down into verse 14. I would expect that many of you have uh, seen the movie from a few years ago entitled, We Are Marshall. It is uh, what some people would call a docudrama in that it is drawn uh, from actual events in which uh, uh, an airplane carrying uh, the football team and the coaches and the athletic administration of Marshall University crashed and all of them uh, were killed and then how uh, they brought in a, a new coach and uh, uh, he began to, uh, to rebuild from scratch uh, that football team and at least in the movie uh, there is this rallying, uniting, identifying uh, cry that we are Marshall. Again, the idea of the solidarity of a group of people that are committed, that that share in a a common identity, that are working towards a common goal. And so as we attempt to lead forward and to to reach out and, and to go forward for the cause of Christ, Really, before we can do that together, before we can be anything more than, you know, 100, 150, 200 folks just going out and going about their own business, we must conclude that that which binds us together, that which unites us, that that which identifies us is greater than all. And that our chant is not, we are martial, but that we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we say that together, as we say that together, we look around and what do we realize? We're not alone. That, that, that we're not the only ones in this fight. That we're together. And that just as that community experienced, and that university experienced a a great loss, a great tragedy. So we live together. I pray that we would never have to endure anything like that, that that colossal loss at, at one time. But you know what? Every week we come together as a people that have what? Suffered loss. Of, of some type, some shape, form, or fashion. We're, we're, we've either experienced it, we're looking back upon it, or we're looking forward to it in the sense that it is sure to come. And so it's very important that we know who we are and that we belong together to, to one another, that we share a common identity and we share in a common purpose and so let's look at the second part I want to pick out some ideas from this particular text we kind of flew over it at about 30,000 feet last week and look uh, for a second time at this idea that we 
are uniquely, uniquely uh, the people of God. Read with me, if you will, beginning chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now down to chapter 6 and verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with the unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Pray with me, if you will. Father, once again, we thank you for your grace, for your truth, for the power of your word, for the working of your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would give me an ability to say what you would have said today and then that your spirit would apply these things to each of our hearts for the sake of our own good and for the sake of your glory and for the sake of the advance of your kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, the Apostle Paul launches into this section in which he speaks of the reality of the identity and the unity of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and he first reminds us of the great reality of the accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ. He entered our realm for the Father to treat him as sin deserved to be treated on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God. Because that is true, we are uniquely now the people of God. We have been forgiven of our sins. We have been united through the working of the Spirit of God, and we share in a common purpose to know Him and to make Him known. And so He says to us in a way that was very similar to what He said to the Old Covenant people, the nation of Israel, that, that we are not to get integrated to the place uh, in, in society and with people to the place that they become the influence upon us rather than us being the influence upon them. That's why he tells, warns us about being yoked, about being tied up with, united with the unbelieving world because we're different from them. We have a, a distinction, we have a, a distinct purpose, a distinct identity that is not shared uh, by the world. And so the Apostle Paul brings forth language from the Old Covenant, from the Old Testament, and he says this is now true of the church, of the New Covenant believer. One of the great difficulties and one of the places that large numbers of people have gone astray in interpreting the Word of God is they do not recognize the discontinuity and also they fail to recognize the continuity 
between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, between the Old Covenant people of God and the New Covenant people of God. And so there are many places in the New Testament where the inspired New Testament writers take a verse out of the Old Testament and says this is now true of the New Testament, New Covenant people of God. But there's some things that passed away with the Old Covenant. And again, most noticeably and uh, most alarmingly, the temporal prosperity promises that belong to Old Covenant Israel, namely the idea of being a great nation economically and politically and militarily, they do not apply in the same way to the New Covenant Church or the New Covenant people of God. And so God does not promise us we will be a great nation or that each of us will be rich and healthy. That simply is not true. It is a perversion of what the Scriptures teach. And I think it's a damnable and a dangerous perversion. It does great damage to the people of God. Uh, what do you do when you or those you love become desperately ill and they're not healed and, it, and then they die? Did you lack faith? Did they lack faith? Is, did you have unconfessed sin in your life? Or it's simply the reality of what God has ordained, the path of suffering for those whom he loves. And so, again, we can see, though, that specifically some of these things do apply to us, the New Testament church, the unique people of God in this age. And so first I want us to consider the reality that we are a chosen people now you can you can think of it this way when you think about being chosen we're chosen God chose to save he chose who to save and he chose the means through which he would save so three words to who and through you remember that kind of rhymes doesn't it to who and through God chose to save there are only two groups that needed to be saved who were they Fallen angels, which he did what? He eternally reprobated them. He eternally condemned them. There will be no Savior, there will be no redemption for those that followed Lucifer in the heavenly rebellion. They are eternally damned with no hope of reconciliation. Who's the second group that needs to be redeemed and claimed? Sinners descendants of our first parents, Adam. And so God chose to save. He was not obligated to. He could have said, you know what? You blew it. You blew it. You had your chance. I gave you the test in the garden. You failed it. All who come after you are included in your rebellion. Therefore, it's over. But he chose to save. And he chose who to save. He chose out of the pool of people that were under his condemnation those who would receive his mercy. What does each and every individual deserve? Condemnation. There's no one that can say, I do not deserve God's wrath. I do not deserve his condemnation. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. You deserve his condemnation. You do not deserve his mercy. That is undeserved. That is of grace. And so God chose to display and extend mercy by His grace through. Through. And this is kind of two, two things. They go together. Through the accomplishment of the Son at the cross. Okay? 
How is it that God saves? Through the accomplishment of Jesus Christ as preached by the people of God. Okay? In other words, the preaching of the God. You know, now here, brand, go ahead and get, get your brands ready to brand me a heretic, okay? We'll say something radical. Our preaching of the gospel is just as important to the salvation of sinners as the death of Jesus Christ. They're both necessary elements. If anybody would be saved, they will be saved through their instrumentality of the unique people of God. They go together. You can't separate them. Jesus died on the cross, and he's handed us that, this message. He said to you, you're uniquely my message, and I, uh, my people, and I have commissioned you with this message through which I will save those whom I choose. But here's your responsibility. You go tell everybody and leave the ultimate work of salvation up to who? Up to me. You go, you proclaim the truth. You let me worry about the details. You let me worry about the rest. And so God has chosen to, who, and through. And so we are the chosen people of God. God announced uh, to Moses in Exodus chapter 6 that I will take you to be my people. That you're going to be my people. Because of why? Because I made a promise to Abraham. Because I chose him a long time ago. I called him out from the dispersal that took place after the flood. The nations were scattered at Babel. Everyone became idolatrous. All of these tribes of people. I looked down and out of those idolatrous people, I said to Abraham, okay, you're living up there in Ur of Chaldeans. You're among a bunch of pagan idolaters. I want you to leave that which you love, that which is familiar, and I'm going to take you to a place that I'm going to show you. And Abraham did it, and God saved him because he was a good guy. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. How has anybody ever been made right with God? They believed God, and it was credited to them as righteousness. Abraham, the father of all who believe. And so God explains to the second generation post-Exodus, the group that's actually going to possess Canaan because of the rebellion of those parents, because of their unbelief. He said, listen, guys, I want you to understand this. I chose you. Out of all the peoples of the earth, I chose you. And it's not because I thought you were so hot. In fact, you really weren't. In fact, you really weren't. Paul kind of echoes that in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. He said, where's the scholar? Where, where's the wise man of this age? God has chosen to save people through the foolishness of what has been preached. The foolishness of an incarnate God born of a virgin who lived a perfect life, who was hung on a cross for our sins and then God raised him to the dead and one day he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. Pretty absurd if you really think. I mean, now, you know, I'm not a superhero guy and I kind of look at some of these young guys, Josh and, oh, so many, I'm not even going to start calling names, but I'm like, 
guys, really? You know, these Marvel, you know, Spider-Man, and I don't, I don't even know their names, and Fantastic Four, and Batman, and I'm like, wow, y'all, y'all, really, y'all really like that stuff, don't you? Yeah, they go to these movies and everything. I believe something far more spectacular than that's what's laid out in a Marvel comic. I believe, again, in the virgin-born Son of God sent into the world to save us from our sins. And so, God has chosen a people. He, he says in the book of Amos, through that prophet, out of all of the families of the earth, you descendants of Abraham, you Jews, I've only known you, which carries both the idea of foreknowledge and choosing and the idea of loving. I determined I would love you. You didn't determine to love me first. I determined to love you, and you loved me because I loved you first. That's the way it works. God is always the initiator. And so Peter brings forth this very language. In 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, if you want to turn over there, Verse 9, Peter's doing the same thing that Paul's doing in this particular text before us. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Been speaking of the reality of the gospel and the accomplishment of the Lord Jesus Christ and why the unbelieving world is so hostile to the message of the gospel, saying that they stumble, they don't believe it. They, 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 they were destined to do that, okay? Verse 9, but, we've talked a lot about buts around here, haven't we? Yep. And so we've smoked a few buts in our time, okay? And this, this is a but in the Bible. But you are uniquely the people of God. You are a chosen race. I have chosen you out of the darkness of your natural state to be a royal priesthood, to represent me before men, to be a distinct, identifiable people, a holy nation, my people. Now, is everything upon the earth and everything beyond the earth God's? Yeah, he owns everything. But in a unique way, he possesses us. In a unique way, in a, in a kind of a corresponding way, in that we willingly place ourselves in the service of God and claim the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately as our master, do we not? Okay? God owns cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. But he uniquely, in a very special way, in a way that's distinct to us as the people of God, he possesses us as Again, an identifiable people. And again, that's why the emphasis here, again, back in 2 Corinthians, that, that we are to be a distinct and to come out. Not be, don't get tied up with ungodly people because it's dangerous for the people of God. Again, that doesn't mean we don't take the gospel to everyone. He's saying don't get yourself so entwined uh, with folks with unbelievers, that they dictate to you your outlook and your actions. One of the things that the founding fathers of this nation warned us against, you can go back and read this in your history books, 
is that we should not get ourselves in what? Entangling alliances with other nations. And that other nations would definitively respect our sovereignty. You ever heard of the Monroe Doctrine? Don't come on this side of the world and mess around. We'll get you if you do. Okay. And so again, we are distinctly and identifiably and purposefully the people of God. Let's look at the second issue. And I, I've kind of taken these in a logical sequence, not so much the sequence Paul handles them in this text. Because the choosing takes place, and then the calling takes place. Choosing, eternity past, calling, time and space. There's a time that you are an unbelieving person. Okay? There was a time that you persisted in your unbelief. It's interesting. I preached a funeral for one of Daddy's old friends on Friday. And uh, uh, he had three children. One of them is deceased. And two of them, of course, were at the uh, funeral. And they're a few years older than, than I am. And uh, uh, the son, the oldest, coached one of our rival high schools uh, when my brother was a senior, Lafayette High School up in Lafayette. Georgia and um, they played my brother's high school team Stuga Indians they're uh, the last game of the season and they beat us and I told in this in my sermon Friday I said I don't know how in the world we invited Butch down here to speak at our church after they beat us but we did and I never will forget uh, we were taking Butch over to our house to eat and I got in the car with him because he had never been to our house to lead him to the house. And we didn't even get out of the parking lot of the church. And he looks in and says, Tim, when were you saved? Now, you know. Now, I was baptized. I've walked down the aisle of church. I was a member in good standing. The problem was I was lost. I was still lost. Now, I kind of bluffed my way through that one and uh, was saved a few years later. But again, there was a time and a place when I was in unbelief and then there was a time and a place where that call of God became personal and powerful to me. I had heard all the stuff. I was about 13, I guess. Okay, I'd been in church three times a week for 13 years. But I wasn't saved. I was still in darkness. I knew all the facts. I guarantee you I could have passed a gospel test. 100%. Because I'm a smart guy. But I wasn't, I wasn't called by the Word and the Spirit. And that, hurt, that happened when? On God's timetable, not mine. Right? Happened on God's timetable. I heard the truth, and he applied it. He gave me the ears to hear and the eyes to see. And so we're a called people. Think about Go all the way back in the initial rebellion of Adam and Eve. Who called whom after the rebellion? Adam, where are you, buddy? Adam, hey, hey, Adam. 
Where are you? I can't whistle. Hey, boy. Oh, where are you? Well, we hid because we were naked. Well, who told you that? God went seeking sinners. That's what God does. And he restored them. If you remember, they tried, now here, here's what men try to do. Whether it's through self-styled religion or performance-based ideologies and philosophies, we try to cover the great reality that deep down we know that we are naked before God, that we have reason for shame. We're always trying to cover that up. And what did God say? He covered their shame. How? Through the shedding of blood. Reckon what he was indicating was going to happen thousands of years down the road. That the ultimate and final covering for guilt and shame would be accomplished through his son. And so we are a called people just as God called Adam and Eve, just as God called Abraham. Abraham, you're a pagan idolater. I want you to listen to me. I want you to come and follow me. I want you to go to a land that I will show to you. Then God has been calling people ever since. Well, how does he do it? Let's go to Romans chapter 10. Let's see that. Remember what I said just a moment ago? That the preaching of the gospel is just important to the salvation of those who believe it's the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's what Paul is getting at here. Uh, Romans chapter 10, and I'll back up into verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who repents and believes upon hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ will be saved. Okay, that's kind of the amplified version. I think that's the rightly divided amplification. Okay, now, then Paul wants us to think very seriously about this reality of the gospel offer. How then... Will they call upon him or call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Now he's just going through kind of a logical exercise. Everyone who believingly calls on the name of the Lord, they're going to be saved. But it doesn't happen in a vacuum. How in the world is it going to be? How is it going to happen? Well, he, he, wants, he asks us some questions. Well, if they haven't believed the message, they're not going to call upon the name of the Lord, and they're not going to believe and call if they've never heard this message, and they're never going to hear this message if somebody doesn't preach this message. Preach what? Let me give you a word. Preach the kerygma. Preach the kerygma. What in the world are you talking about? Preach the core of what God has done to save sinners. The sending of the Son, the death on the cross, the resurrection from the dead, the ascension to the Father, the return one day for us. Get make sure. We too many times we want to talk about. Now again, 
Jesus dwells in the heart of the believer. That's not, we're not debating that. That's the truth. That's a reality. But too many times we jump over Jesus in the heart and Jesus the great healer and the great physician and the great friend and we forget about what? The Jesus on the cross who died for your sin. That is the place of salvation. That is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it must be proclaimed. We must proclaim it as it is written. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel. For as Isaiah says, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. In other words, all through the course of redemption, there have been faithful preachers that have proclaimed the gospel, even the Old Testament prophets. And there will be people who hear it and do what? Refuse to repent and believe. But it doesn't negate the truth, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. That that. The, the word, the gospel, is heard, it comes to us, we're, it's, we're proclaimed, and God supernaturally works in our heart to cause us to believe it. There, there's an old song uh, that we used to sing, it's taken right from pages of Scripture, I know uh, him in whom I have believed. And there's, the second stanza goes, I know not how the, this saving faith to me, he did impart. Now see, the songwriter, he's a good theologian. He got it right. Because I didn't conjure up saving faith from my dead heart. God, through the work of his spirit, imparted to me the ability to hear and believe this message of Jesus Christ. Nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. I don't know how it happened. I don't know why it didn't happen when I was 10 years old or 8 years old or 12 years old. It happened when I was 15 on God's timetable. When I finally heard the message. Now, but, you know, some of y'all say I'm hard-headed. I don't, I don't really get that. I look in the mirror and I don't see a hard head. I, I really don't. Some people would say, Tim, you were just hard-headed. I, I don't know. But I got saved on God's timetable, on God's terms. And it came through the preaching, the word and spirit coalesced to produce a miracle, a miracle in my heart to save me from my sin. And so we're a called people. We're called by the gospel, by this foolishness that, that is preached. And, you know, you've, you've often heard me say that regeneration in a sense, mimics and foreshadows resurrection, okay? That, that something happens in us that's somewhat like our resurrection from the dead, okay? There's kind of a parallel there. There's also this act of calling, that calling to salvation that mimics God's final call when he appears in the sky and the trump of the Lord will sound and he will call us out of the grave. And Jesus himself said he's going to call, and he's going to gather the elect from the four winds. Paul speaks of being get, snatched up to meet him, or snatched out to meet him in the air when that call takes place, when Jesus appears in the sky. See, I am crazy. I believe Jesus is going to come back on a white horse one day. Not just that he was a baby lying in a manger in Jerusalem, in a Bethlehem, 
I believe he's going to split the sky on a white horse. And this body, which will be placed in the ground, and the worms will have eaten, will be reconstituted and called out by the, the same powerful word that will call me from the grave called me out of my sin according to God's timetable. Now, how do you like that? It's the same deal. It's the same. I was just as dead in my sins then as I would be dead in the ground one day. I was just as helpless and hopeless. And so, our call mimics. So we are the called people of God. Now, let's look at an experiential aspect of this. Go to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, a couple of years ago, we spent a lot of time in this text. Peter speaks to us about this business of calling and being chosen and he says, be sure. There's a methodology that each of us should employ to ensure the fact that we indeed have been called from darkness to light. In verse 3 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. God has given us what we need to live to please Him. Okay? Uh, that, and I, I, I believe they're fundamentally pretty ordinary things. You ought, to, you ought to read your Bible. You ought to worship corporately. You ought to hear the Word of God preached. You ought to pray. I mean, pr- pretty simple stuff, actually. Very, very ordinary and God does the extraordinary through He does the extraordinary through And so, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Now, skip down to verse 10. Therefore, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. In other words, How do you know you've been called? How do you know you've been chosen? How do you know you've been saved? I mean, however you want to ask it. All all of those are good ways to ask it. Just like Butch asked me almost 50 years ago. When were you saved? What was the right answer? Never. I haven't been. I didn't know that at the time. I actually thought I was saved. How do you make your calling and election sure? Well, Peter has taken those intervening verses to explain. You grow in the grace of God. You mature in your outlook, in your perspective. You mature in your walk. You become more Christ-like. You see these things increasing in your life and amplifying in your heart and in your mind. And we know, and we know, that we belong to God, that we have been called, been chosen and called. Chosen, eternity past, called, reality and time and space, through the preaching of the gospel. Somebody told us, in my case, many people told me, time and time and time again, probably in your case, you were told the gospel time and time and time again. And then finally one day what? As we say, it took. The pump got primed, so to speak. 
okay? And then finally, this morning, back in our text, 2 Corinthians. We're chosen people, we're called people, and we are a consecrated people. Again, we're not to be so involved with unbelievers and tied to them in such a way they influence us. Verse 14, we are to go out from their midst. We're not to to hang out with them. That's not to be where we spend our social life. And then chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises that we are uniquely the people of God and that He dwells among us, that He has claimed us as His people, and He is our God, and we are His people. That's, that's good news. Y'all don't look like you heard any good news this morning, but it, it really is. I, you know, I know I have to tell you that. You're, now you're smiling. That's good. That's better. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Holy, holiness, sanctify, consecrate all come from the same word, hagiosh. Hagiosh. Same, same concept. To set apart, to purify, to, 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 to determine it will be used for a holy purpose. All of those things apply here. And so, what is objectively true? You've been chosen, you've been called, you've been marked out, you've been identified. God says, I'm your God, you're my people, you're uniquely my possession, you're, 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 you're holy to me, I've set you apart, I've claimed you as my own. Now, you complete that, by making the objective realities of a, being a holy people or a holy person, you make that a reality by making it experientially and ethically a practical reality in your life. You add these qualities, as Peter mentions them in his life, the qualities of Christ. You see them in ever-increasing measure in your life. That's how you bring holiness to completion. And notice there what it says. Not because God is your great good buddy in the sky. You do it in the fear of God. We were wrecked. My brother and I were kind of reminiscing and uh, talking about some of our building experiences. And, well, I mixed the mortar for that foundation. And I did this and I did that. And got to talking about a particular house. And I said, yeah. Yeah, I mixed the mortar for that foundation too. And then we got to decking the roof. And I had finally had it with my daddy. I mean, he had been chewing on me all day long. It was 100 degrees up there and nailing and sawdust and sweat in my face, my eyes burning. And, you know, I, I, just, I just had it. I mean, I, I mean, I was ready to throw down with my daddy. But you know what? I feared that man. He loved me. I believe he'd have died for me. I really do. But I had the appropriate fear of the role my dad played. For the most part, he kept my mouth shut. You know? It is a right thing and it's a healthy thing for us to fear God. Okay? He is our Heavenly Father, and I want you to know if you're his child here today, he loves you. And here's the thing. Because you've been called 
You were foreknown, and now you're called. He is working all things for your good. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I stubbed my toe this week. That's going to work for your good. Wait a minute, my, toe, my toe's black and blue. It's going to work for his promise. I can't, now I'm not, I can't tell you how. That's, I'm not God. All I can tell you is Scripture's true. It's always true. Well, you, don't, you just don't know, Tim. Yes, I do know. That he is going to work it for your good. Maybe it's simply the testimony of how you deal with the adversity that comes naturally in a fallen world. That's right. How, how adversity is going to come. What are the three areas? How many times have we talked about it? Relationships. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Finances. Hard to make a living. Health. It's hard to stay healthy. I went to my cousin's funeral yesterday. Bad week when you have one funeral. Terrible week when you have two. And because of small towns, large family, and so forth, I saw just all kinds of people. Also at Dr. Ferguson's wedding. I mean, funeral. And I saw his daughter. I was telling Ellen, and she wasn't particularly impressed. I said, man, Patricia was a looker in the day. I said, I'm telling you. I mean, if you if you went around and asked about Dr. Ferguson, they said, oh, that Patricia, she was a doll. And she was. But she's aged. She's aged. My sister graduated from high school in 1970. I, gradu- I mean, my, si- my, my cousin. I graduated in 1976. And I saw all these people that were six years older than me. So many of them came back for her funeral. They didn't look like they looked in 1970. Some of them had to tell me who they were. Now, I started to make the mistake that uh, Bobby Britt made one day at lunch. Uh, Janine's not here, so I'm not going to embarrass her today. Don't tell her I said this. I told her I'd quit saying it. But Bobby looked at me one day and said, Does Janine and Bill Price still go to your church? Well, yes, sir. Well, she used to be a good-looking woman. Now, Bobby, would you like to rethink that before I go ask her about that? Uh, you, you need to think about that for just a minute. But I, I, I saw a lady yesterday, one of the prettiest, now she's way older than me, six years, but went to church with her, just beautiful. Fifty years has kind of worn on her a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's the realities. But God is working even our unavoidable agedness to our good. I've used the text Friday, and I've used it many times. Better to be in a house of mourning than a house of feasting. Why? Because you hit the pause button, and maybe you'll think about the reality one day I'll be right here too. And you need to be ready. And once it happens, it's too late. And so we are the consecrated people of God, marked out. We've been called out of darkness. We've been called out of his, into his life. And we've been called to proclaim the excellencies, the marvelous nature of his grace. That's what Peter goes on to tell us in 1 Peter chapter 2. And so we are uniquely special 
to God. And God has promised to equip us and to accompany us in the journey. To, to go with us through the deep and dark valleys. To, to go with us as we seek to go forward. Why? Because His name's at stake. His name is at stake. And He is going to be glorified in us. That the world would see us. And it would be our goal for the world to look at us and say, They're special. They're, they're unique. They're... I mean, they're not super spiritual. I don't mean that goofy stuff. They're not legalistic, moralistic. That's not what I mean. They're uniquely identified as the people who God has claimed and who have dedicated themselves to serving Him. We are God's people. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for your truth, for your word, for the work of your spirit. We thank you that indeed you work within us and you work among us. I pray now that you would call us to greater faithfulness, to greater service. That Again, in seeing your work in our lives, we would make that calling and election sure. Lord, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.